Please turn with me to the book of Daniel. Good morning. Daniel comes in the Pew Bible on page 737, just after the lengthy prophetic book of Ezekiel, which is 48 chapters. It's coming on page 737 if you're trying to find that. The Old Testament outnumbers the New. Almost three pages for every Old Testament per one page in the New, to kind of give you some idea. So Old Testament is lengthy, worthy of our look, to be sure. Rodney Stortz wrote the story of Brian Chappell's story, so credit them both. He was talking about the story of a wife of a full-time student at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He said, like the wives of many seminarians, Karen was earning money to help her husband in school put food on the table, and in her case, Karen made her living as a quality control inspector for a major pharmaceutical company. One day, through faulty procedures, the automated machines reproduced a large order of syringes that became contaminated and therefore failed inspection. Karen reported the problem to her boss, but he quickly computed the costs of reproducing the order and made a cost-effective decision. Because so much money would be lost in replacing the syringes, the boss ordered Karen to sign the inspection clearance despite the contamination. She refused. But this did not get her off the hook. Because of certain federal regulations, only Karen could sign the clearance forms. If Karen did not sign, the syringes could, be, could not be marketed. So the boss urged and even threatened, but Karen would not budge. The impasse between Karen and her superior led to a visit from the company president. He also computed the costs of reproduction and issued this decision. The forms must be signed. Karen would have the weekend to think it over and to think over whether or not she would sign the clearances. The president told her that if she was still determined not to sign the forms on Monday, her job would be in jeopardy. In fact, much more than Karen's job would be in jeopardy, this was her only means of income, and it was a well-paying job, not to be easily replaced. Randy's education and their family's future were severely endangered. You might even say his ability to lead in worship would be in danger because his training would be in danger and his dreams would be in danger. They had made hopes and dreams and career plans over many years, and this could be shattered as a result of the choice that had to be made the next two days. So... For this young man and for this young couple, all the theological jargon and doctrinal instruction about consecration and righteousness and holiness suddenly came down to one concrete decision. Could they afford to remain undefiled from the contamination the world of business practice, practicalities urged Karen to approve? What would you do? This couple's predicament is similar to what God's people have faced in all the ages. The first chapter of Daniel well illustrates that there have been pressures on God's people to compromise their holiness, to compromise their way, their worship. And as Daniel unfolds, we'll see how important the preparation to pursue holiness is before you ever get to the point of needing to make a decision about personal decisions of holiness. Daniel 1 represents the prologue to the book and describes how he and his three friends were taken into exile with lots of others in the Babylonian court. The Hebrew exiles lived faithfully to the Lord while serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. ESV Study Bible, which we recommend here, cites that in 605 B.C., down to the fall of the Babylonian Empire, which is in 539 B.C., and into the early years of the Persian Empire, their service brings blessings to the Gentiles, and Daniel witnesses it all as he is exiled in the first wave of persecution. Most of us see God's plan in history. As Christians, we know God has a plan. But some see history as his story, to break the word in half. Totally his plan, as we've talked about. Top to tail, in good times and in bad. Till death do us, 
I wouldn't say part, but meet till death till we meet, because that's what it means, right? We part to meet and meet to part, as one has said. So we live for the Lord today. That's how we see history. Bad things never happen to good people because there's no good people for bad things to happen to. But bad things do happen to God's people, don't they? And so how do we interact with bad things happening to God's people? How do we act? This calls for wisdom. Because Karen may have made a different situation given a different set of facts than she made. Karen and her husband had to make a decision based on the set of facts that she had, not some other set of facts in some other place. And she had to do it in a whip stitch. She had two days to make the decision. But she had a lifetime, her and her husband did, to prepare for a difficult decision to be made. That's what Daniel is about. It's about interacting with what happens when bad things happen to God's people. It's about interacting with it before we have to act. And the prologue to Daniel helps us set the table for that. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is apocalyptic visions. But Daniel 1 to 6 fits a, a narrative that many of you probably know from Sunday school. Like Daniel in the lion's den. Or perhaps you know about the fiery furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I hope through this journey through Daniel that we can see Mighty God always, always, always in control of history, even when it seems like he couldn't possibly be. So this morning, we're just going to take the first seven verses. And when we look at the first seven verses, we're going to look at the history of God's people in verses 1 and 2, the pain of separation in verses 3 and 4, and the foiled plan of pagans like Babylon in verses 5 to 7. So if you want to follow along with it, Think of verses 1 and 2 as the history, verses 3 and 4 as the pain, and verses 5 to 7 as the plan. Hear the word of the Lord, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chiefs of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And just for context, I'll read verses 8 and 9. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He asked that he allow them not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace into the hearers. So what happens when we don't get what we've asked for? Well, first let's consider the history of God's people to date with things like this, shall we? It says in verses 1 and 2, to refresh, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. Well, who is King Jehoiakim and where is Judah? These are questions worth asking. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, this particular Babylon, because there was one before it, came to Jerusalem and took it over. He besieged it. And in besieging Jerusalem, it says in verse 2, that he took valuable things. He took vessels from the house of God. Can you imagine if some opposition party to us came in here and took this or took that? or grabbed this, or grabbed that. Can you imagine the emotions that you would feel if that happened? Would you be angry? 
Uh, would, you, would you not want to take it? What happens if you fought it as much as you could and the, the opposition party that came in was so strong that they were able to exile you or deport you to a different location, to a location where they have stronghold, to a location of their choosing? This is what happened to Daniel, and not just to Daniel, but to his three friends, and not just to those four, but to no doubt many, 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 I don't know how many, but many youths, as it's described in Daniel 1. And this occurred right at 600 B.C., 605 B.C. Let's just review a little history. Our kids have a little sing-song they do history with, so I'm just going to grab some little clips from it real quick and reword a few things to fit how we want to explain the history of God's people to date here is his story. We have creation, God made everybody, right? Creation in the fall, fall of man, Adam fell, sinned in Genesis 3. So if creation in the fall, in, in Genesis we read about the flood, right? Noah's ark and the flood. It's very interesting when a contemporary of Daniel writes about Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes about Daniel, and he compares his righteousness to that of none other than Noah. You know who the third person is that he, he refers to him as similar to? Job. Well, if you think about the narrative of Noah and then the narrative of Job, at least for the prophet Ezekiel, he thought of Daniel in the righteous vein of Noah and Job. It might be worth thinking about that from the vantage point of how Noah had to stand alone there were eight of them on the ark, right? The ark of salvation. And think about Job. He had to stand alone, didn't he? He didn't have lots and lots of support. Most people that offered him counsel didn't really believe in his basic premise that he'd done nothing overtly and directly to cause the pain that he was being allowed to have. So history tells us something about salvation. And the history of God's people to date told something to Daniel. And the history of salvation to date for us, which includes Daniel, tells us something of how God operates. So you have creation in the fall. You have Noah's Ark and the flood. You perhaps read about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. No doubt Babel is a forerunner term to Babylon. And if you think of Babylon, Babylon is, the, is a metaphor and also a real arch enemy of God's people. We learned about that in Revelation when we, fin we just spent a long, long time through Revelation and we learned about Babylon as a metaphor for the enemies of God's people all the way through there. You would read in history about ancient civilizations like Mesopotamia and Sumer, about the Egyptians. You would see parallels between these kingdoms in terms of how kings operated with many wives and slaves and things like people being made eunuchs as well, servants to the king, plundering. You'd see all that in these ancient civilizations need to be very careful we're not anachronistic, that we don't take our ideas about how life should be lived and take it and comport it to these centuries. We also need to be very careful that when we're thinking about things like polygamy and slavery and, and making eunuchs and conquest and whatnot, we need to be very careful that we don't think that we would be uh, so courageous and different than our peers if we were there. We don't want to be snobs like that in terms of chronology. We need to understand that we live in a time, and they lived in a time, and the lessons that we learn from the time in which they lived must be learned on the terms of the time in which they lived, and not based on some kind of newfound enlightenment that we have this side of the cross, this side of a whole lot of freedom and opportunity. Thinking historically, there were Hittites and Canaanites, there were the first Assyrians and the first Babylonians, there was the Israelite exodus, their desert wanderings, and their conquests and judges. Greek had their own dark ages. Israel had a united kingdom. And you may recall that that united kingdom divided after the death of Solomon. And so that divided kingdom split into two kingdoms, north and south. The north first led by King Jeroboam, ten tribes. And the south first led by King Rehoboam, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And Judah became the moniker for the south. And that's the group that we're talking about now, is Judah. And we're talking about the time in which Judah falls to Babylon. But there is some history between Solomon and Judah falling to Babylon. And there's a lot of that written about in the Old Testament. And it's instructive for us and helpful for us. Israel, the northern kingdom, fell 
to the Assyrians, the ruling empire of that day in 722 B.C. You could see Isaiah's prophecy for information about that. You see them falling in the 700s, and then you will see Judah, the southern kingdom, falling, falling in the 500s to Babylon, as we're talking about here, the ruling empire of the day. Daniel is exiled in the first wave of exiles, Ezekiel in the second wave, and if you read Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jeremiah dies not too long after Jerusalem is absolutely obliterated by the Babylonians, and Lamentations is this long lament of Jeremiah overlooking the city in flames and in ruins, and we preach through, Jer- we've preached through uh, Jeremiah's Lamentations as the weeping prophet two summers ago, not this summer, but the summer prior, actually. And we led through a, a book by Mark Vrogop called uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And so if you're in a t- particularly tumultuous time, we'd point you back to that book, that series, and how to think about times of utter lament. But that's in the backdrop of Daniel, although it's not necessarily in the foreground, because what we see with Daniel is different than what we see with Jeremiah. Jeremiah dies early in the deportation of the Jewish people of Judah. Daniel lives through it all. Daniel sees multiple kings. In fact, as Jeremiah instructed, he seeks the welfare of the city Babylon, and he sees welfare. He is, their success is his success. And yet there are lines that he won't cross living in a pagan culture. And those lines are based on wisdom, but they're based on something biblical as well. We need to think about these things as we go through this book, especially the narrative section in the first part of the book. So Daniel is exiled in 605 B.C., and that's what these verses are talking about. And the beloved temple back in Jerusalem would be destroyed about 20 years later. The temple would be rebuilt 70 years after that, but Daniel's life spans this exile period. And after that, of course, you have Greek, have Greece having a golden age and the Romans conquering Greece and the Roman Empire pretty much runs to what we call our own dark ages or middle ages and that's only interrupted by the Reformation and the Renaissance leading into a lot of the literature and the, the basic freedoms that we have in the West today coming out of the Jewish and Christian heritage. That's basic history 101 running through. But I'm arguing in this first point that history is his story. That the things that are happening are happening because of God's allowed and according to plan. Things are going on, and even when evil seems to triumph, it's kind of like what Joseph said, evil meant it for bad. they meant it for evil, but God uses it for good. Even though all things are not good, God works things all to the good according to his plan. This is a Judeo-Christian worldview, and that is precisely what is in the crosshairs of King Nebuchadnezzar and of the wily Babylonians. They want to take aim at the worldview of the best and the brightest of God's people. And that's exactly where these four young men find themselves. Consider what verse 2 says. The Lord gave King Jehoiakim into King Nebuchadnezzar's hands, and he hauled off vessels from the worship house, from the house of worship, and they were taken to the pagan worship place, to Babylon. To Babylonia, Babylon. And the Lord allowed this. And Babylon's king carrying these things off says something about worship. Think about the city of Babylon. The ESV study Bible says this about the city of Babylon. It says, The city of Babylon reached its zenith under the Nebuchadnezzar of Scripture that ruled from 605 to 562 B.C. So this is the Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about. He restored it. He enlarged it. He made it the largest city seen in the world up to that time. The largest city seen in the world up to that time. The Euphrates River flowed through it with the oldest quarter of the city lying on the east bank of the river. The city was surrounded by a city wall with fortified gates, and they were named after various Babylonian gods. There was the temple of Marduk, with its associated seven-story ziggurat made to one of their gods. And so this is a, a, a fortified city, a city with pagan gods. You might have studied in history the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This was a fortified city. It was a formidable foe, and it looked as if there's no way Daniel and three buddies could stand against the power of this kingdom. And in a sense, they didn't. But in another sense, they did. And that's part of the story. 
It's part of this story as his story, as history. I want you to consider this term Shinar. It points you back to Babel for sure. If you were to read Genesis 11 to afresh, you would see Shinar used to describe this ancient foe Babylon and the attempt to build that city on top and reach up and touch the sky without God. This is about worship. History is fundamentally about worship. Will you worship the one true God? Or will you worship the pagan deities? Will you worship what is convenient? Will you worship what leads to your own comfort? Will you worship that which is more pleasing to you? I'm reminded of Hebrews 13, 14. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So even as we seek to develop what we have here, we're also understanding that we are seeking the city that is to come. This is God's story This is the history of God's people to date, verses 1 and 2. Now let's consider the pain of separation from families and home, because this is a real pain in history. This is not just some mythological story. Daniel and his contemporaries were separated from their families of origin, and that is underpinning a lot of the mood of this narrative in Daniel. Listen to verses 3 and 4 again. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. You know, sometimes we can just pause right there, I suppose. Sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for, right? What you ask for. I want to be the best-looking young man. I want to be the most skilled and the brightest. These are the ones they hauled off to Babylon. They were in the first wave of deportation. They take them off. I'm not saying we shouldn't desire things and ask for things. But do you believe that how God has made you is how God has made you? Do you accept that your frame, that your intelligence quotient, your, even in some cases, your fortitude, your, your, your experiences your family of origin, do you accept that God is sovereign over your story as part of his bigger story? I fear that if you do not accept that premise, you could not possibly arrive at the same application points that Daniel arrived at that's described in Daniel chapter 1. Because as a 13-year-old young man, he is whisked away from his family of origin, and he is hauled off to another city. He could have been bitter. He had every reason to be angry with God, didn't he? He could have simply decided, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to get what I can get. And as they say to the littles, I'm going to throw a fit. You get what you get, you don't throw a fit. He could have just thrown a fit. Internally, he could live for himself, taking all that Babylon had to offer. He, he doesn't appear to be bitter. Him, he and his compadres, don't, they don't appear to be bitter, and they don't appear to just be hedonistic and live for themselves and live for the moment. There seems to be a quiet confidence in the sovereignty of God, and, and I'm, I'm going to argue in the way they were raised in the faith that leads to the applications that they make and that we so treasure when we read Daniel. We need to see God in this. God gave them the early upbringing that they had. If you read in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy in his ministry in so many ways, and thus encouraging us in the ministry of the Word and how important it is that we grow in the Word, in the Lord, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's there's a subplot story to 2 Timothy that I think is instructive for Daniel. Twice in 2 Timothy... Once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 3. It's just four short chapters. Twice in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul urges and encourages Timothy, or he encourages Timothy rather, by urging Timothy to consider how he was made wise for salvation through the teachings of his grandma and his mom. Through the teachings of his grandma and his mom. Remember how your grandma and your mom taught you. And Paul even name drops the first name. He drops their names there. And he says, remember grandma and mom. Remember their names. Remember how they made you wise for salvation. Now, for all that Daniel lacked, he apparently had been taught the faith somewhere. 
by the community, by parents, by grandparents, because he is standing on the Word of God line by line even when he's taken far away from the corporate worship of God and from his hometown and his people against his will. It's a real pain of separation. Even if it's temporary in this life or temporary until eternal life, there's a real pain of separation for him from his family and from his home. And so he's taken here, and he finds favor with Ashpenaz, the, the chief of the eunuchs, his overseer, and with his steward, we're going to see, that's kind of the middleman between them. He finds favor with them, but don't lose the fact that Daniel is facing a major re-education, re-indoctrination camp. He's a young man. He's going to need to be able to cash in on his bank account of faith. He needed to be catechized in the faith at a young age. They did not perhaps foresee how urgent the need was that he would know the language and literature of the Hebrews before he was thrust into education of the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Don Carson speaks of this like this very aptly. He says, A number of aristocratic young Jewish men have been transported to Babylon. According to Daniel 1, they were well treated. The policy of Babylon was not only generous, it was clever. I love that word, clever. It was clever. The empire would pull in these gifted and well-bred young men and give them the best education and social formation in the world with a string of prerequisites to make the prospects still sweeter. And in due course, they would enter government service intensely loyal to their benefactors while contributing their youth skills and knowledge of the imperial frontiers. The four Hebrew young men mentioned here would eventually become so Babylonian in their outlook that they would forget even their birth names. Daniel would become Belshazzar, Hananiah would become Shadrach, and so forth. More on that in a minute, because it was clever. And that's the word I want to key in on from Carson and give him credit. That's a wonderful word here. Babylon is clever. The pagan empires of the world are clever, aren't they? Those that do Satan's bidding don't do it with a pitchfork and a red suit, do they? They're clever. They're cunning. This is not to say, as a bit of a disclaimer, this is not to say that learning is some optional extra. Daniel 1 is a treatise of the importance of early learning, of training children in the faith early. Literature and language was clearly part of Daniel's aptitude, and he probably knew that from home. Learning is good. Wisdom is even better because it synthesizes a lot of learning. And I believe it undergirded the better of these decisions. So we see the pain of separation in this fallen world, but we also see undergirding this a stewardship of littles that led Daniel and his three friends to be able to make quick decisions, sometimes in a matter of a day or two, like Karen did but to make them with a whole lot of underneath. We cannot wait until it's too late to be formed for the decisions that we'll need to make when we need to make them. We need to be intentional about the education of our children in the faith now. We need to be sacrificial about it now. We cannot wait until it's too late. Our third and final point is the plan, although it was foiled, it looked like it wouldn't be, the plan of Babylon with these youths. So we've, we've seen the history of God's people to date. We've seen the pain of separation, how this world deals us painful separations at times. And now we see the plan of evil Babylon with young people, with youth. Listen to verses 5 through 7 again. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So they, he's giving them what he's got, the best he's got. They were to be educated for three years, it's an interesting parallel with seminary. If you take full loads, it's three years, actually. It's 90 hours. It's a big program in terms of hours, but it's, it's three years at 15 hours a semester. So they were educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
They're going to have to give an account, and we'll see next week, Lord willing, them standing before the king, what happened. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, so the southern kingdom of Israel. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Now this is crafty. It's subversive is what it is. He gives them names, and we've said the names already, so I'll not read them again, but he gives them these names. So they were, they were tempted with the king's food, and they were renamed. So let's talk about these two things within this third point. This is what, again, the ESV study Bible is so helpful in Daniel 1. This is what it says about this temptation. Hear what it says. It says, Daniel and his three friends resist the attempted assimilation. It's important to note that they retained their original names and resolved not to defile themselves with the king's food and drink. Now, why did they not defile themselves with the king's food and drink? There are a lot of options here. Many have thought that the four men's resolve came from their intent to eat only ceremonially clean food and not any unclean food like what's described in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14. And perhaps that's accurate. That may be part of the explanation. Babylonians would have eaten such thing as pork, sausage. That would have been unclean for Jews. But wine would not have been prohibited by the law in Jewish scripture. So that can't be the entire explanation for them. Uh, unless perhaps the young men feared that somehow the wine had been polluted through failure to grow the grapes according to the rules of Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 20. So there's a second view here. Another view is they feared that the meat would have been offered first to the Babylonian idols. So this gets into like Corinthians where food sacrificed to idols. And that may have been part of the reason provided for their reluctance to take part in Babylonian food. But the vegetables and grains would probably also have been offered to idols if that were the case. So that doesn't seem to be the most persuasive explanation. You can see why I'm quoting the ESV commentator here because he's very thorough. He offers a third view. He says they were following a vegetarian diet for health reasons. That's helpful, but it's unhelpful. It's, and that's and the reasons it's unhelpful is because, other than the fact it might be healthy, no Old Testament laws would have taught that modern idea. So... The editor offers his fourth view. I think it's compelling. It combines elements of the first two and appreciates the third. It says, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture, which was the king's goal with these conquered subjects. He wanted them completely assimilated into the culture. With this restricted diet, they continually reminded themselves, perhaps in a sense of like fasting, that in the time of testing that they were in, that they were a people of God in a foreign land and that they were dependent for their food, indeed for their very lives upon God their creator, not King Nebuchadnezzar. And it is possible even that Daniel later came to accept some of the Babylonian food if you read Daniel 10.3 that way. So this is a, a wisdom decision for sure that Daniel and his three friends made. And the Lord gave Daniel favor, we read about in this chapter. Favor with his captors, and that's apparently an answer to Solomon's prayers for the exiles. And the steward honored the request for a special diet. We're going to read about that next week. So this is how they handled the food. They drew a line there, resolved not to eat the king's food. But what about their names? The name Daniel, and I'm quoting from Trimper Longman here, a great theologian, means in Hebrew, Elohim is my judge. God is my judge. Elohim is one of the Hebrew names for God. The name Belshazzar means may Bel protect his life. It's direct opposition in terms of worship, theology, and God. Bel is one of the gods of Babylon. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is the personal name of God of the Bible. A good Hebrew won't even say what I just said. They won't pronounce the name Yahweh. Shadrach means Aku is exalted. Mishael means who is what Elohim is, a statement of worship toward Elohim, one of the names for God. While Meshach means who is what Aku is. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. And Abednego means the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. You see these names were direct statements of re-education and re-indoctrination into the pagan culture. These names were meaning something. And the fact 
that Daniel's name is preserved means something. It speaks to how history remembers Daniel. These names that were given to these individuals were part, as well as the food, were part of this overall plan from King Nebuchadnezzar and from the Babylonians to paganize these young people and thus shape public opinion with the Hebrew people writ large. It was clever. And it would have been very easy to just go down this path. And so when we read that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, when they resolved they would not do these things, they would not live as Babylonians, even though they needed to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon, they were saying something. They were doing something. I'm reminded of Revelation 2.14 that says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites by, to, eat, to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. So in Daniel's day, eating food sacrificed to idols was a sin against God. Daniel was willing to be holy regardless of the cost, but he was not willing to compromise his holiness. And so are we willing to take risks sometimes that comes with the pursuit of holiness. What does it mean to live in a kingdom like Daniel did where we are faced with pressures to conform? It might not be as overt with these renamings, but pressures nonetheless. Let's take it a different angle as we think about not food, but names. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is tasked with a very important task of dominion. He's tasked with naming the animals. It's kind of a fun exercise to stop and think what that might have been like. Uh, Adam is naming a giraffe a giraffe or a zebra a zebra. You fill in the blank. Go through the animal kingdom. What's being done there is it is a, it is a delegation of authority from God. It's this is how you will reign in my kingdom. And so Adam names. But we know that Adam didn't name himself, did he? Who named Adam? God. It's a statement of how all authority is derivative from God. So God names Adam. Adam names the animals. Now let, me, let me ask you this. When we have authority given to us in the kingdom in which we live, do we recognize that 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 authority comes from God, and do we act accordingly? What, Bab what King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is doing is he's undermining that chain, that line that goes to God with authority. If we see God as the top of the flowchart, it's going to affect our decisions. If we see God as the top of the flowchart, it's going to affect how we act when we don't understand why certain things are allowed when we don't get what we ask for. I'm reminded of some passages in the New Testament. I'm reminded of some passages, particularly from 1 Peter. Just, just listen uh, to these passages. It's, it says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And then he lists some cities in Asia Minor. And he says that they are elect exiles in verse 2 of 1 Peter, according to the foreknowledge of God. That their exiled state is according to the foreknowledge of God. And it says, it's not, it says more than that. It says not only according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but in the sanctification of the Spirit. So they're being sanctified through this exile. For obedience to Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That theme in 1 Peter continues, that theme of exile. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15 it says but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited with your, from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of the Lamb without blemish 
or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And if you're an astute listener, you might say, well, why does he undermine the ways of, that they inherited from their forefathers? That's because these were Gentiles that were converts, and these Gentile converts didn't need to follow the ways of the pagan gods like the Babylonians. So if you weren't handed a Jewish Christian faith paradigm in your youth, then you should reject that and follow Christ. But if you were handed an understanding that the Messiah would come to the birth of a child, like Daniel likely was, you cling to that and you don't go with the pagan way of thinking. It's a call to faith for faith, and it's a call to holiness. Be holy as I am holy. And conduct yourselves, it says in 1 Peter, with fear throughout the time of your exile. One more quote from 1 Peter, so relevant to Daniel. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Calling the believers that are exiled and scattered, beloved. He said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's a war. It's described as a war. It's a wartime mentality, the spiritual war. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. And if you'll indulge one final cross-reference, I think it's encouraging. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So synthesizing lots of concepts from temple worship, Old Covenant promises fulfilled, and showing them as fulfilled in Christ, and showing that we are established not as strangers to Christ's kingdom, but as fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, old and new. It's built on a firm foundation. It spans time. God foreknew from the foundations of the, of the earth, and he had foreknowledge and understands our exile, even as he understood Daniel's exile. Nothing happens outside of God's understanding and allowance. This history is our history. This pain is our pain. And the overcoming of Babylon's wiles against God's people is our overcoming of Babylon's wiles against God's people. We too face reindoctrination and reeducation. We too face the pressures of our time. And as we face it, we face it in sure and certain hope of eternal life because God has been good to give us a way out from underneath this pressure. Sinclair Ferguson describes Nebuchadnezzar's tactics as isolating you and then seeking to indoctrinate you and then calling you to compromise and then thrusting you into confusion. But we, we are not those without a rudder of faith. Daniel and his friends resist the temptation to assimilate to the idolatrous culture in which they were immersed. But they don't do it perfectly. They just do it aspirationally. I feel confident if you were to read Daniel's long and illustrious life from perhaps 13 years old when he's exiled until his death, I guarantee you that his life is marked by ups and downs the same as yours and mine. I seriously doubt that God ever meant Daniel to be the hero of this whole story. He acts exemplary in ways that's true, but the point of the story is not Daniel's righteousness any more than the point of Noah's story is Noah's righteousness, remember? He did some things wrong. Any more than the point of Job's righteousness is Job's righteousness. Remember, he did some things wrong. The point of the story of Daniel and his resistance to temptation is to show us that we can and to point us to the one that did. For we have a high priest that was tempted and tried, Hebrews says, in every single way. And yet, you know how it ends? He was without sin. This is about more than daring to be a Daniel. This is about trusting in the one that is righteous, not just that pursued righteous. David Helm offers three helpful application questions at the end of his writing on this 
text, and I'm going to share them with you. Number one, has there been a time when your conscience urged you to follow a potentially difficult path? Has there been a time when your conscience urged you to follow a particularly difficult path? Number two, church members are involved in training the next generation. What part are you or could you play in training the next generation? What aim do you need to have in raising your children to be ready for when the indoctrination cycle hits them? And thirdly and finally, being godly in the world is not necessarily opposed to being useful in the world. You can be useful and seek the welfare of right where you are. Does this encourage or challenge you, and how? Let us put our faith now in the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. If you find yourself this morning needing to trust in Christ, I simply want to tell you what we've found. We have found that Jesus knew no sin, lived a perfect life in order to become sin for us and take on our sins on the cross and to die that we might live. Daniel If there were any righteousness in him at all whatsoever, as the Bible says that there was, looked forward to the day that the Messiah would come and die for his sins, the same as we look back at the day in which he came and died for our sins. That's what faith is. And I invite you today to put your trust not in Daniel, but in Daniel's Lord Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, thank you for guiding us to think clearly that we might pray faithfully. Today we've acknowledged before you how imperfect we are, how it escapes us. But we're seeking faithfulness and we ask for your help. We thank you for the men that studied corporate worship at the men's breakfast yesterday. We thank you for the plans made by our members at their meeting last Sunday for next year. We petition you for our newer members you've blessed us with this year. Over 20 have united in membership and we lift them before you. We welcome them in April and June and September and even this month of November. If we were to count our blessings and name them one by one, surely we would name these. We're thankful. As we are in pain, we lift before you as a prayer of petition, those that need healing from sickness and ailments. We pray for Zach. And representatively, we pray for many, such as Jimmy and Diana and Mike and Ron and Julie and Deputy Hicks. God, we pray for the Hall family. Memorial services yesterday, Lord. We hope we're comforting, but we ask that you would comfort them this day and in every day ahead with the grace of your gospel. You have said you're close to the brokenhearted, so that means you're close to us, and we're thankful for it. We petition you to comfort all those in our midst who have recently lost loved ones. Those who are uneasy about these holidays. We pray for comfort, and we thank you for it. We pray for those with upcoming procedures, such as we know of like John and Angela, heal their ailments. We pray for those who work and labor in the workforce and businesses. Pray that you would guide them. We pray for wisdom for families this week, where the gospel needs shared along with the Thanksgiving meal. We pray that you would grant us courage and clarity to share the faith with our friends and our family. We pray for our children and our unborn children and our pregnant mothers. We also pray for busy moms and busy dads. 
for which we're thankful. We pray for those that are angry and confused, maybe bitter, maybe blindsided by the culture that have gone the way of Babylon for a while. We pray you'd show them your mercies were made new today. We pray for healing that extends even to their emotions, even to their minds, even through addictions. Help our missionaries, such as the Wilsons, with needed paperwork. Help Cornerstone Church to finish well as they seek to close at the end of the year. Help our Advent season, we ask, in accord with how you want to be worshipped. We're so thankful and ask that you bless our meal that's been prepared and our fellowship, that we might be edified and your name might be exalted over lunch today. Use our mealtime talks to further your agenda, your gospel, not ours unless our agenda is yours, and even for evangelism. Spirit, please steer us. And Lord Jesus, come. With thanksgiving we pray. In thy name, amen. Please stand for our benediction verse, which will come from the sixth chapter of Galatians, verse 18. It's very simply, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Go in peace.